Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm AJ Langley, and today I'm joined by Delphine Konzelman. She's assistant of church history at the University of Basel. Delphine, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to speak with you. So today you're here to talk to us about William of St. Thierry. But before we talk about him, let's talk a little bit more about you. How did you first become interested in William and in mysticism more generally? Well, it took some time, actually. So I studied theology in the first place, and I started studying in Switzerland. And I haven't heard of any mystics during the whole of my bachelor's degree. Like, that was just not a thing that we looked at at all. Like, I did the whole church history thing, never heard of mysticism once. Like, I think we tackled Bernard of Clairvaux, but it was more because he's like an important figure and he's an important abbot. And it was never about mysticism. So that didn't occur to me at all. And then I did my master's degree in the U.S. And I had a great church history professor. Shout out to Paul Roran. If he's listening to this podcast, he might actually be listening to it. And he really introduced me to mysticism, especially women's mysticism. And that was just interesting for me. But I still wasn't sure about it. I was like, oh, I don't know that much about it. I'm just curious. And then I started my PhD and I had to find a topic. And I was actually very interested in the question of patristic authority in the Middle Ages. That's what I wanted to look at. I wanted to see how are these medieval authors constructing patristic authority? How do they read the text of the fathers? What's going on with that? So I wasn't even looking into mystical authors for my thesis. And I kind of stumbled upon William of St. Thierry. I'd never heard of him before, even during my master's. He just never appeared, <laughs> which is interesting if you do Bernard Clairvaux, but you never even hear of William of St. Thierry. So I looked at him and first I read about his conflict with Peter Abelard which is what he's probably most famous for, except for the people who know him as a friend of Bernard's. Most people know him as the guy who attacked Appelar, one of the guys <laughs> many people did. So I really didn't expect him to be a spiritual writer as well. I was just interested in, oh, wait, how is he using the church fathers as kind of an argument for orthodoxy and against what he perceives as heretical? And then I realized, oh, there's so much more to this person, and he can actually be considered a mystic. So really, my thesis changed a lot from what I first thought it was going to be, but I think that's the case for everyone. Yes, absolutely, 100%. I don't think I know anybody who finished their PhD doing exactly what they said they were going to when they first started it. Now, you mentioned that there are generally kind of two ways that people know about William of Santory either because of his friendship with Bernard of Clairvaux or as one of the many critics of Peter Abelard. But do you remember what your first impression of him as an individual was? Yeah, so first I thought he was just a critic of Abelard's. That was the first thing I read. And then I started reading his commentary on the Song of Songs as well, which is totally different. And then my second impression was, oh, this seems to be kind of a divided person. He seems to be kind of torn between, on the one hand, looking at things analytically, defending orthodoxy, being a very theoretical thinker, and then being the spiritual writer who's interested in the Song of Songs, who's interested in experience of the divine, on the other hand. 
And then I realized that that isn't true either, but he integrates those two things with one another. I think his life is actually not as torn between these two aspects as it seems, because that's the same thing for him. When he criticizes Abelard, he's really defending what he believes to be Christian thought and how Christian thought has to be done. And that's the same thing he does in his other writings. He says we need to approach it from a perspective of prayer. We need to integrate inspiration and holy doctrine. It's much more interconnected for him. And it all has to do, I think, with authority. So my initial question really still applied. So yeah, it changed for me the impression of what mysticism is, what spiritual writing is as well, because I always thought of it as something very different from this whole school theology environment, but it really is integrated for him. It's a very holistic approach. But yeah, it changed a couple of times my impression of William, but I always liked him and I still like him to this day. Well, I'm very glad because otherwise you picked the wrong person to talk about today. So let's go back and talk a bit more about his biography. Obviously, from the context you've already given us, he was a contemporary with Bernard of Clairvaux, but that's not really enough. So what do we know about William's life? So, yes, he was obviously contemporary of both Bernard and Apollar, as one can see from his most famous aspects of his biography, but he had a very different kind of education than Bernard did. So we do think that he went to the cathedral schools of the time. He had kind of a pre-scholastic education, and that explains why he was much more theoretical in his approach than Bernard. It's not entirely clear which cathedral school he went to, but most people think he went to Reims. And then he became a Benedictine monk first. And eventually he became kind of disillusioned with the Benedictine style of monastic living, this whole focus on excessive liturgy. He was really just kind of excited about what was going on in monastic reform at the time. And I don't think it was clear for him from the beginning that he wanted to become a Cistercian, because he also seems very interested in the Carthusian way of living. So he had these kind of options plopping up all around him of like, how can we change and how can we shape monastic living? And he became an abbot, a Benedictine abbot at St. Thierry. And then he was very quickly, was not very happy with this position because as he himself states several times, he wanted to be a simple monk. He didn't want to be this big abbot who has to organize all of the living situation and who has to kind of lead these people. That was not his calling. His calling was to be a simple monk and devote his time to the service of God to prayer. That's what he wanted to do. And he talked to Bernard quite a bit about that because obviously when he got closer to Bernard, which he did when they were both sick and at the infirmary and kind of tried to get better (laughs) alongside each other, they had lots of conversations and he became more interested in the Cistercian way of living. And he told Bernard he actually wanted to become a Cistercian monk. And Bernard was very against it at first. He was like, no, you have responsibilities as an abbot. You can't just leave your monks. Like, that's the commitment you made and you have to stick with it. So it took him a while until he actually got to do what he wanted to do and retire. And then he eventually did. And he retired to the monastery of Sini and became a Cistercian. And so 
his writings, we always have to look which period of his life are his writings actually from. Is it from when he was still longing? Like many of the prayers are still from this period of longing where he's just saying, I'm so distanced from God. I really just don't experience God. I'm not where I want to be. He's very raw and honest in that way in his prayers, which, you know, can be explained by his situation of not being where he wants to be, like physically. So yeah, that's kind of a a broad summary of how his life went. Obviously, there's more episodes. His whole conflict with Abelard was only one of a few. He also had a controversy with Rupert of Deutz about the Eucharist. Yeah, he can be very polemical in certain areas, but then he has his exegetical commentaries. He has prayers and meditations. He has more speculative works. He has a really broad range of literary genres they produced. Everyone is so keen to interpret the Song of Songs. I wonder if him and Bernard were having some sort of Song of Songs interpretation competition or some such. But let's stick with William. Can you elaborate a little bit on the genres that he wrote in? Well, that's an interesting theory. I would actually love to hear more about that theory. But yeah, so about the genres, that's one of the things that I think seems so confusing at first glance about William is that you have the Disputatio against Abelard, which is very structured. He's just like, bam, bam, bam. This is what's wrong with your argument. This is what's wrong with your approach and your method. Seems very structured. Then he has his own earlier speculative works, which are still very much influenced by the way that he was taught to do theology. I mean, side note, he doesn't really think of himself as a theologian, because that's a word that Abelard uses, and he's very much against that word, that self-description. He says, I'm not really doing theology, I'm doing Christian thought. But nevertheless, he was really influenced by the school education, and very interested in speculative philosophical questions. And then I really do think it's kind of a turning point when he meets Bernard, when he sees that there's a different way of pursuing Christian thought, that there's a different method, and that this kind of spiritual sense of scripture really plays a different role, that you can read scripture allegorically. I think that for him is kind of like his mind was blown. He was very interested in deepening that kind of thought. And he has several exegetical commentaries. He has a commentary on Romans as well, which I think is a little different from his commentary on the Song of Songs. No, I mean, it's very different. Um, I really, I kind of compared the commentary on Romans with the Disputatio against Abelard and kind of set them in relationship because I think in the commentary on Romans, he talks a lot about the attitude of a Christian thinker what is appropriate and what is not. And he really focuses on the figure of Paul as kind of the ideal Christian thinker. And another thing that was extremely confusing to me, and I think is to a lot of people, is that before he wrote his own commentary on the Song of Songs, he compiled Florilegia, two Florilegia, one on Ambrose and one on Gregory the Great, on how they read the Song of Songs. So Florilegia are anthologies and He's really just compiling quotations from the commentaries of Ambrose and Gregory the Great. And there have been great studies recently on these Florilegia that have made the point that these are very different 
from one another. So that is not just one big thing. He's just doing these anthologies. But what struck me first was that he's not using any of the material that he compiled in his anthologies in his own commentary. That was interesting for me because I'm looking at the way that he uses the church fathers. He reads Ambrose and Gregory the Great extensively, and then he never quotes them in his own commentary. That's very different from what he does in his commentary on Romans, which he describes basically as an anthology itself. He's like, oh, I'm really not doing anything else than all the fathers have done. I'm just compiling it, which is, you know, literary humility (laughs) more than anything. Right. But in his commentary on the Song of Songs, I feel he's much more able to express things that he wants to say in an original way. He's not trying to be innovative, but he has his own voice very clearly, and he takes a different direction. And yeah, and then there are prayers, there's the meditations, which again, in style are very different, very self-reflective and more literary in their composition. It is nice to see that even though he is incredibly well-read, that he does kind of separate things into these different types of works. So summarizing what other people thought and then doing his own Christian thought. But you still obviously have that humility topos there to deal with where he says, oh, I'm not, you know, doing anything special. This is just thinking about things as a Christian. Yeah. And it makes sense that it's different in his commentary in Romans than it is in his commentary on the Song of Songs, because what he gets out of Romans is really pretty straightforward. He's like very historical in his approach. He's trying to contextualize what Paul wanted to do in the community of the Roman Christians. So he's contextualizing that, and it's pretty straightforward to him. He's like, this is what Paul says this is what he wants to say, and this is how Paul does it. That's what he's interested in. So for him, in the context of Romans, the authority of Augustine is just, I mean, he has to do it all in an Augustinian sense. But then for the Song of Songs, it's more difficult to use Augustine because Augustine didn't do much with the Song of Songs, and he had a more kind of negative view of the body as well. And so Augustine isn't really a source that he can use in a direct way in his commentary in the Song of Songs. So you would think, oh, maybe he's using Ambrose. Ambrose talks a lot about uh, especially the kind of line of interpretation that uses the bride as an allegory for the church as a whole, the church as a community. But William doesn't want to do that. William wants to go with, I'm going to say the new thing. It wasn't entirely new. But this emphasis of the bride as the soul and not the church as a community, but the individual soul, that's what he was interested in, which for me just kind of shows that he can have these different interpretation alongside each other. He's not saying, well, Ambrose was wrong. He can't say that. He doesn't want to say that. He's just saying, we're all doing these different things with the text and we're all getting these personal teachings out of this scriptural landscape. That's what's interesting for him, which then contrasts this view of William as someone who has this one particular view of orthodoxy, right? You could get that from his criticism of Abelard. You could think, oh, this is a person who knows what's right, and there's only one way to go. But that really is not what we get from his exegesis at all. Okay, so it's not that there's only one way to be right, but just that Abelard is specifically wrong. 
Yes, exactly. And what I think really kind of sets him apart from other critics of Abelard is that he is really talking about method, mostly. He's not as much talking about particular ideas. I mean, he does talk about them, but he really is interested in saying the attitude you're approaching this with, that's the problem. And personally, I agree with him. I think it's very difficult to accuse Abelard of any philosophical or dialectical inconsistencies. And that's why he won most of his intellectual debates. But when you go to the level of saying, no, you're not humble enough, there's really nothing that Abelard can say to refute that. I actually really like that because it's, you know, you've done a lot of work, you've done a lot of study, obviously, you know what you're talking about, but you're also a jerk. So we don't like you and you should probably just stop. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it goes deeper in saying that humility is actually a prerequisite on an epistemological level, not just we all have to be humble, we all want to be humble and just kind of making a display of it, but saying, no, you have to be humble, you have to have humility to understand anything about a God who humbled himself. Like that's, that's his point. There's a necessity to be humble. And for William, you can't do dialectics and be humble at the same time. We could argue about that, I'm sure, but (laughs) that's his main point. Amazing. So as you mentioned, one of the primary ways that people know about William is through his relationship with Bernard of Clairvaux. And as we talked about on episode five with Lika Smits on Bernard, he wrote extensively on the Song of Songs. Now, this isn't a particularly long text. So in what ways does William's interpretation differ from Bernard's? Oh, that is so difficult. Like that's difficult for several reasons. Because it's easy to kind of guess, oh, William was the more theoretical thinker of the two. So the passages that are viewing this in a more systematic way, that might have been William and not Bernard. But I think that's that's too easy because they really influenced each other very closely. I mean, they lived together in the infirmary at Clairvaux. They basically had all night and all day to talk about this. And we also have a shorter commentary, the Brevis Commentatio, which we don't even know to this day whether it's a product of their collaboration at that time, or whether it's Bernard's text or William's. And it still is very difficult to say. You can't really say, oh, this is typically William, this is typically Bernard. Personally, I find passages in the commentary on the Song of Songs of William that I see as a little more daring, personally, because You know, if you think about the text of the Song of Songs, you have all of these like explicit details. And for a lot of people, Bernard is already really indulging in that erotic imagery. For me personally, I don't think he really is. Like the breasts, for him, the breasts are pretty much always maternal. For William, I'm not entirely sure if they are or if there's an erotic aspect to the breasts as well when he talks about kind of the chest of Jesus and he's really talking about the male chest as well and looking at it, wanting to lean against the male chest. That's, that's a different kind of breast personally (laughs) than the one that is just nurturing and giving you milk and all of that. So I think there's slight differences, but nevertheless, it's very hard to keep them apart. That's what makes it interesting. We'll always get to look at the text again and again and again. 
Okay, so we don't have to worry that this was ever a conflict in their friendship. It's such an interesting thing because it's not entirely clear if they were friends at all in that sense. Oh, really? How so? So, for me, it really comes down to what we have from their correspondence, what we still have from the letters. We unfortunately don't have William's actual letters, but we do have a very heartbreaking letter that Bernard sends to William, where he really just says, I'm going to put it in very simple terms, why are you so needy? Why do you want so much from me? Like, I'm giving you all I can, but you really just want more. You want more of my friendship. You want to be the most important thing in my life. And you keep sending me all these letters and requests and just stop. Like, that's not our relationship. Yeah, I mean, at least not a very healthy one. I mean, he puts it in different words. But if you write to someone, you're like saying, oh, I feel like our relationship is not reciprocal. And they answer with a whole theoretical spiel about what friendship means and how you can perceive the other person as a fellow Christian, then you kind of know where you stand. So it really does seem like Bernard did not view William in the same way that William viewed Bernard. I mean, he wrote the first Vita of Bernard. He was so excited about this spiritual genius, really, of his time. And he felt like he could learn so much from Bernard and that he was really close with him. And there's an argument to be made about Bernard just not caring that much about any of his friends. He writes in very emotional, very close terms to a lot of of people who we have to say, well, did he even meet them? Was he even friends with them? Did he know them? So yeah, it's kind of a tragic thing that I think William really loved this person and it might not have been the same in return. Yeah. Poor William. I feel bad for him now. Like he needs a cuddle and a good friend. Yeah, absolutely. He does. I mean, there's many examples of this in medieval letters as well of friendship between men and it seems to have been a very complicated thing and it still probably is friendship is always complicated but it makes William so much more human to me when I read these texts and I'm like oh he wasn't just interested in friendship in a purely spiritual way no he also needed this person he wanted to matter to them Yeah, I mean, I kind of get it from Bernard's perspective. I mean, he's also a contemplative, and he is seeking a connection with God, not worldly connections with other people. And while friendship is important, and it's good to recognize and love humanity, you know, you can't necessarily prioritize one person above everyone else if your goal is to have that union with God rather than with other people. It's a complicated thing. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly the argument he's trying to make. And in that, he's very different from like Elred of Ribot, who at the same time is a Cistercian author who really talks about friendship a lot, spiritual friendship, and how that's a source of knowing God. Bernard is not the same way. He really makes the argument that you just made. I also think he was just very busy. If we look at what he wrote and just the masses of letters he wrote to absolutely everyone in Europe at the time, where's the time for friendship? <laughs> well, in that case, maybe we all just need to prioritize friendships more. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can all relate to the busyness in academia, but also relate to William's kind of desire to be closer with one another and have these deep conversations. 
maybe we just have to reinstate infirmaries and whenever we feel a little sick, we just go to this infirmary of academics and just talk about God and the world for days on end. That would be nice. I feel like that's what academic writing retreats should really be. All of us just hanging out and socializing and sharing ideas, but actually we really do need the time to work. Speaking of writing and working, let's go back to William's writings. Out of his whole corpus and all of these genres, is there a particular text that you like the best? So my favorite part has recently been the prayers, because that's something I didn't really look at before. I was very interested in the commentaries. I was also interested, it still is one of my favorite parts, in the Golden Epistle, which he wrote for the Carthusian community of Mon Dieu. He wrote this epistle about how to lead your monastic community, how to educate, especially the young members of the community and all of that. That's very interesting. But then I looked at the prayers, and I think they're different in many ways. And they say much of the same theoretical things, like they use much of the same concepts, but they express them in such different ways. And like I said, I think William is very honest, very raw in what he describes as living for God. He doesn't claim that this is an easy path at all. He doesn't just focus on the good experiences with God. He really talks about what it feels like as a monk to be distanced from God. And if you think about it, that's horrific. There's literally one thing you want to do in life, which is serve God and you cannot experience God. Like that's horrible. And it really is depressing when you read the prayers, but he always brings it back to kind of hopeful love. Um, So yeah, it's a very dynamic way of looking at his personal relationship with God. And I love that. Fantastic. Do you have a passage or an excerpt that you would like to share with us? Yeah, here's one. It might not be the most emotional, but it's interesting to me because it combines his sort of approach of listening to the authorities, listening to orthodox doctrine, and at the same time having a personal experience. Okay, sounds great. Let's have it. But, oh Lord... You can place hiding places for your countenance in the darkness of our ignorance and the human blindness, but you have set up tabernacles around yourself for your light, bearing saints who shone and burned with the light and fire of your tents. They illuminated and incited others through their words and example, and they proclaimed the phenomenal joy we will derive from knowing you in our future life, when we will see you as you are, face to face. So that, I think, is a really beautiful passage that kind of explains how authority of the saints, of the fathers, of all of these people who have thought about this before, who have had their own experiences, how that makes it possible now to have our own spiritual experience and our own hope that we will attain similar kinds of knowing. So he's not as much like a visionary mystics as others are in as it just happens and you just, you know, you fall into ecstasy and there's a moment of rapture or anything like that. That's not what mysticism is with William. It always happens through the mediation of the church and of tradition and of doctrine. And that's where you can see these inspiring moments and these moments of Well, vision, nevertheless, just a different kind of vision. I always love hearing about the different ways that mystics saw the 
journey towards God, the attempt to connect with God. And William reminds me a little bit, actually, of Augustine Baker, who we talked about on episode 13 with Liam Temple, because he just wants to be left alone. He just wants to contemplate and have this life of focusing on God. And instead, he just keeps getting dragged into debates and pulled into different positions because they see him as valuable to the church as a whole. And there's part of me that's just like, these poor guys, they just want to sit quietly and pray, leave them alone. Yes, exactly. I love that you said dragged into it because his conflict with Avalar was actually during the period where he was already retired at Signy. For me, that really shows that he had no church political interest in all of this. Like there was nothing he stood to gain from attacking this person at all. And in that, he was very different than other critics who really tried to defend their positions against Avalar. He had no other reason. He could not have had any other reason for attacking Avalar other than just really believing that this was putting Christian thought into danger. This was putting Christian doctrine into danger. And as he was saying himself, he's kind of endangering the poor souls of the people who trust his way. Like, that's what he was interested in. So yeah, I agree. It all comes down to what is Christian thought and how do we dedicate our lives to just pursuing that reflection of God. So what is William talking about when he's talking about God? Is he more about God or Christ or the Trinity? Does he conceptualize this entity in any particular way? Who or what is God to William? So I could answer this in two ways. I think he really is interested in the Trinitarian structure of God and in God as the Trinity. He emphasizes that over and over again. It's interesting, we just talked about his kind of approach toward inspiration, and he has this passage where he says, you know, you can be inspired to believe in the three parts of God, but then fall into heresy because you're not emphasizing at the same time the unity. So you need the holy doctrine to correct your inspiration, even if the content of your inspiration is actually true. I mean, God is three. He's just three in one. So you need holy doctrine to always correct that view that you're getting from just your experience. And even the purest of heart can fall into heresy that way. So the Trinity is really important for him, especially the Spirit. I think he emphasizes the Holy Spirit a lot more than Bernard does. Bernard maybe emphasizes Christ a little bit more than William does. But I mean, that's just nuance. But then I would say what's most important to him about the character of God is God is love. And that is how you can understand and know God. That's why dialectics doesn't work. If God is love, you yourself have to perceive God with the faculty of love, which is the heart. You can't really do it with a kind of a rationalistic approach, or you can only do it to a certain extent, right? At one point, going after God with the mind and with the ratio there's a limit to that. And what is that limit? What stops people from going further? So the reason he says that is because he really has this idea of you have to conform to a certain degree to what you're trying to perceive. I mean, even in biology, during his time, we're seeing that idea, your senses have to conform to what it is you're trying to perceive. So for him, it really is just 
logical in a sense that if you're trying to perceive love, you have to do it from a perspective of love. You have to conform to a certain degree to the love that you're trying to get to know. That's one aspect. And then the other, I think I have mentioned before in a different sense, but humility is a prerequisite, right? And that's that's really a harsh critique of the philosophers of antiquity because he says, in fact, they saw a lot of things about God, but they lost that knowledge because they didn't humble themselves. They realized, okay, God may be infinite, omniscient, all of these characteristics. They could see that. But then they believe that they know this because of their own intellect and not because God is a God who reveals God's self. So they kind of missed him. They missed the mark because of their pride. And then their whole knowledge really is futile. It doesn't matter what they think they know. They've lost it because they didn't realize that they were given this knowledge. And that comes back to what you were saying earlier about the importance of humility, because the idea that you can only know something because you've been allowed to know it removes any sense that you had involvement in the process. And also that obviously comes back to his arguments about Peter Abelard and his whole demeanor and attitude towards figuring out theology and why he won't consider himself a theologian because that would almost be taking too much credit for the ideas that he is sharing when instead it must be a form of revelation in order for him to just be allowed to know about it. Yeah, absolutely. So humility for him is just really the basis of it all. And that sometimes leads to people perceiving him. I mean, not any experts in William, but I think if you just read a little bit of William, don't really know him from any other context, you could think that he's really simplistic. Because he also quotes Ambrose in saying that, yes, you're allowed to know that God was incarnate, but you are not allowed to know or you're not allowed to ask how that happened. You know, the modus operandi of that whole thing, you're not allowed to ask about it. You're just allowed to know that this is what is revealed to us, that this is what we get from scripture. Don't ask anything beyond it. And that, from a modern perspective as well, is really just like, oh, you don't want to ask the hard questions. You don't want to approach that. Uh, you're just really trying to get away with this revelation is enough point of view. But I think for him, it's more complex. He says that you can know more about God, but just when it is revealed to you. I don't think he's simplistic at all. He's just really safeguarding the method of theological thought. And I can see that from this perspective, it's not about not asking those big questions. It's just that if you were supposed to know the answers to them, you would have already been told. I mean, look at all of the things that you have already been able to access and all of the things that you already can know. Why are you asking for more? At that point, it is for you and not for God. You're asking those things for yourself so that you have knowledge that you weren't permitted to have, which frankly is prying and people should mind their own business. Exactly. He's like, well, isn't that enough for you? I mean, the statement that God was incarnate, let's just accept that and then think about what that means. Just knowing that, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for our lives? What does it say about God? 
And that for him is already the source material for more than one book. <laughs> he basically says you could think about that your entire life and you will still not have gotten it all. You will still not have understood it in the deepest way possible. So yes, for him, that's definitely enough, not because it's very little, but because it's so much. Well, we are unfortunately coming to the end of the podcast, which means we just have the one final question, which is, why is William of Saint-Thierry your favorite mystic? I think what really fascinates me about him is the diversity of his thought. Like there's reoccurring themes, but he always manages to put them in different terms and to look at them from different perspectives. Like it's not like you've talked about one particular concept and that might be spiritual intellect or something like that. And then you've read the passages that were important and then you know what he's talking about. That's not the case with him. If you look into a different work, it will sound entirely different. It will be the same concept, but a totally different perspective on it. And that's what I think is so interesting about him. And he just, yeah, he just seems human to me. He just seems relatable to me in many ways. It is very nice when people seem like people. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Delphine, thank you so much for being here today and for telling me all about William of St. Thierry. Thank you so much. It was really exciting. And it has been great having you. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic. And join me next time when I speak to Elsa McDonald about Marguerite Poirette.